Pray with me. Father, thank you that through it all, you draw us close to you. Thank you, Lord, that no matter the situation that we face, that grander earth has quaked before. So, Lord, may we know you and commune with you in a new and profound and deeper way today and know that you are the one who is trustworthy and on whom we must keep our eyes fixed and by whom we will not stumble or fall. In Jesus' name, amen. Looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, Paul and Timothy has been instructing Timothy about the church in Ephesus, about challenges that they are dealing with, with heresies, false teachers, Christians teaching things that are wrong, and that Christians are living their lives in ways that are inconsistent with how Christians should be living. So Paul continues to give instructions on that, and that's what we're entering into here in this passage. And apparently, as Paul's dealing with the different issues of the church in Ephesus, one of the main challenges that they had there, not unlike our own society, is there was a lot of conflict about the roles of men and women in society, in the family, and in the church. For the book of Ephesians, Paul gives instructions for husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands out of love for Christ. And here, in this passage, Paul is instructing Timothy about relationships within the church and within the church body. Let me also state that as we go to this passage, um, this passage is another example of why we as a church are committed to what we call expository preaching and working through books of the Bible, namely because this is the passage of Scripture that lots of people skip over. And um, someone said to me this past week, they said, you know what, I've heard, a lot of t- I've, I've heard a lot of sermons on 1 Timothy, but every time when it comes to this passage, the pastor skips over these verses. Are you going to do that too? And I said, no, I'm not, so help me God. And, um, and this is what Paul writes, challenging passage for us to consider today. Paul writes this, having just given instruction on prayer, praying for government officials, praying for the advancement of the gospel that we examined last week, Paul gives this instruction. He wants the hindrances to the gospel to be removed. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise... Also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word today. Father, we do ask that you would outpour your spirit upon us, that we would understand the things that are readily not understandable, and that your spirit would encourage us in your words to stay fixed on Jesus and to honor your design, and your intention. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is arguably one of the most 
challenging passages of Scripture. Um, certainly, it is a challenging passage of Scripture around the globe, as we'll see in a few moments. And my goal as we enter into this passage is to clarify a couple things. Number one is that I want to demonstrate for you good Bible study skills when we come to a difficult passage. One of the questions that we wrestle with anytime we come to any passage of Scripture, let alone challenging passages of Scripture, one of the goals is to answer the question, what did the original author, excuse me, what did the author intend to communicate to the original audience, and what are the principles that we share in common with them today? And so, for example, in other passages of Scripture, such as Paul's instruction about food offered to idols, not really an issue that we deal with in our culture, but incredible insight and truth that are relevant to how we live our lives. So our understanding for this passage is to understand, free from cultural distortions, what exactly is Paul teaching here in this passage? Let me also state from the outset, in case you're wondering, uh, spoiler alert, what I'm giving you is the historic understanding of this passage, uh, what I believe is the biblical understanding. And to say that, is that the biblical teaching here challenges unbiblical male domination that this passage is distorted to support, it challenges unbiblical male patriarchy, and it also challenges uh, American feminism. What I'm about to share with you the biblical understanding of this passage that has been agreed on by the church, including the challenges of the passage for 1960 some odd years. And different understandings of this passage really didn't develop until 1969, and subsequently in the 1970s, there are a number of things that came out. Also, I'm sharing with you, um, I'm following the argumentation of the, uh, the PCA, the Summer Denomination, released a, a study paper on a variety of issues related to women and women in, women in ministry and a variety of different things, and they have presented what is the historical argument and historical understanding, and I'm following their argument pretty closely this morning. It is also important to note as we dive into these difficult issues that what is taught here only holds together if you also understand what the Bible says about the church and the role of the church. We're going to get into some technical things, diving into some weeds this morning, and if all of that's a bit too much for you, here's the bottom line, is to say, is this, stay focused on Jesus. That's the bottom line. And if, every, and if that's all you walk away with, I will have accomplished, I will have accomplished my goal. All right, let's dive into what Paul is teaching here in this passage. If you remember, Paul was just instructing the church on to pray and the need to pray, and to pray fervently, and to pray regularly, pray for leaders, pray for the advancement of the gospel, because there is one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He ends that call in continuing with these verses. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul's first concern is that any hindrance to prayer gets removed. There are hindrances to prayer because of what the men were doing, and there are hindrances to prayer because of what the women were doing. And for the men, he's saying, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. He is, a, he is assuming that when people pray, they pray with their hands lifted up. And the problem that the men had is that the men, when they were praying, were angry and fighting with one another. Now, that's a little bit outside of our realm of comprehension. I mean, it seems pretty absurd to us. But imagine that if you came to our prayer meeting like Wednesday night, and people started standing up to pray, and as they're praying, it is clear that they are angry and fighting with one another in their prayers. 
Okay? Paul's like, this needs to remove, remove that hindrance. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. And I think there's a problem for that. And the reason why it doesn't make sense to us is because in American culture, if you walked into a church and people were praying and they were arguing and fighting, you would leave. Right? Americans would just quit. And that's what Americans do when they don't like something in a church. They just quit. And they just leave and they go somewhere else. And so these people, granted, what they were doing was abhorrent, but they were committed to the local church. And Paul's saying, no, this needs to get worked out. You need to remove these obstacles. When you pray, you need to pray from godly hearts. You're fighting your anger as a hindrance to prayer. And you need to pray sincerely to the Lord and remove anything that would hinder your prayers and hinder the prayers of other people. He then continues on and says, likewise, why, what does he mean by likewise? Likewise, women, when you're praying, same thought, I desire then that in every place men should pray, likewise also the women. Why is he saying likewise? Because he's addressing women praying here. Likewise, and this was the issue that was going on with the women. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul warns the women, particularly at this church, he warns them about showing off. He warns them about drawing attention to themselves in the clothes that they wear, the jewelry that they have on, the way that they are carrying themselves. And he encourages them, he says, remove the obstacle to prayer, godly women, Conduct yourself with respectable apparel uh, that's appropriate for those who profess godliness. Now, to be clear, I don't believe Paul is prohibiting jewelry, but what he is saying is saying, women, don't dress ostentatiously, don't dress seductively, don't dress sensually, don't dress to show off, don't dress to draw attention to yourself, and especially not when you come to church is that your model of womanhood and femininity should not be Jennifer Lawrence or Beyonce or Julia Roberts or Vivian Lee or Selena Gomez. Would it pick, your, pick your iconic sensual woman from whatever era you would like. Your, your model is not you know, Jennifer Lawrence. Rather, what you should be striving for, ladies, is that in your dress and in your deportment, the way that you carry yourself, dress and carry yourself in such a way not to be a hindrance to the gospel. Not to draw attention to yourself and not to hinder the advancement of the gospel, not to hinder the gospel mission. The issue in this church is that women of high stature, high societal stature, had expensive braided hair done by their hairdressers every day when they came in. And when they were coming into church, everyone was saying, oh, she's here. And that was indicated by her hairstyle and her clothing. And Paul's saying, no, when you come to church, come to focus on Christ. Don't make the focus on yourself. Make the focus on, worship, worship, on, on worshiping the Lord. I would say, given that the issue here was expensive, sensual, extravagant dress, and rather Paul's admonition, dress in a way that's proper for women who profess godliness, it is possible to err on the other end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum. For example, if Christians trying to honor this verse said, you know what, therefore, we are going to, all the women are going to wear burlap, and we're going to wear burlap dresses because we're not going to be ostentatious in our apparel, I believe that would be a hindrance to the gospel. Because people would see the burlap brigade walking down the street, and they're like, what's up with them? Like, is that what it means to become a Christian? You have to wear burlap? No, Paul's concern is remove anything that would be a hindrance. 
conduct yourself in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, but in a way that, that is consistent with women who profess godliness. And he says, what you should be known for when you pray, what you should be known for is you should be known for godliness with good works. You should be known for Christian character overflowing in love for God and love for people. And what should captivate your attention when you come to church is not the brand of shoes that the woman across from you in this prayer circle is wearing or the brand of purse that she has on. What should captivate your attention is godliness and Christian conduct and people living for Jesus. And so women, likewise, pray. Pray because it's necessary. Pray because it's effective. Pray because it's needed. And may your prayers not be hindered by fighting, and may it not be hindered by fashion. Second point, remove the hindrance to prayer, remove the hindrance to learning. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is globally a highly offensive verse. Because imagine if you lived in certain African countries in certain Muslim countries, in certain Asian countries, and a Christian missionary comes in, and that missionary says that women should learn. That person is being subversive of the entire social order because women in many places of the world aren't permitted to learn. And in fact, it was subversive at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this, because in Greek culture, which Ephesus was a part of, in Jewish culture, women were viewed as mentally inferior. Educating a woman was regarded at best as a waste of time and a waste of money, and at worst would be a cause for temptation, because the number one thing you don't want in your life is an educated woman. You know, might, not know, might not know what she would do with it. That was their culture. And the Jewish Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jews, actually taught taught in it, says men should not talk to women lest they be influenced by evil, disobedience to the law of God, and the inherent damnation from speaking with a woman. Philo, who was a Jewish and Greek philosopher at the time, he was Jewish and he was trained in Greek philosophy, said that Satan wisely attacked Eve through senses, for in us, mind corresponds to man and the senses to woman. Men are those who think women of those who are just controlled by the sensual emotions of this world. He continues, The masculine soul devotes itself to God the creator, while the feminine soul attends to the created thing. Okay? Highly, that was the cultural cultural ethos, the cultural climate. But the apostle Paul believed, as does the Bible, otherwise. And Paul and the Bible practiced and taught otherwise. Is that the Bible does not rank a person's capabilities or the capabilities of their soul based upon gender. Rather, the Bible teaches that women are created in the image of God, and as Paul says here, that women should learn, and women should learn and should be taught just as men are taught. And of course, since no one can learn when people are being noisy or being insubordinate or disrespectful to the teacher, it makes sense what Paul is saying. Let a woman learn quietly Not absolute silence, but with a a quiet attitude, being respectful of their teachers, with all submissiveness. Why submissiveness? Because that's every one of our issues when we approach Scripture. The issue for all of us is that when I read the Bible and I hear Christian teaching, am I going to submit myself to the will of God or am I going to follow my own will? 
And so Paul, in upending and in challenging the cultural norms of the time, is saying, yes, women should learn. They should learn quietly. They should learn submissively. Why? Because all of us need to, women and men, need to submit themselves to the Word of God and submit our will to God's will. What Paul is saying makes complete sense for someone to learn. But let us acknowledge here that Paul is advocating for the education of women in the things of God against the prohibitions that were present in the culture at the time. Frankly, for us today, I wish more women would learn theology. A couple years ago, and I've got permission to share this story, um, there was a ladies' Bible study that was going on. And one of the leaders of the group came to me and said, hey, we want, would, you, would you review this book for us to approve? All of our teaching is approved by the elders of our church. And the title of the book was called, we want to do this women's Bible study, and the title of the book was called Theology for Women. I just about popped a gasket. It's like, uh, you know, this is the low-fat, low-sugar version of theology, like theology for dummies, theology for women. I just about popped a gasket because I was like, if women want to learn theology, study theology. If you don't want to do an in-depth study, if you want to do an intro to, if you want to do an intro to theology, fine, do an intro to theology, but don't use some watered-down version because theology for women, because they really can't handle the theology for men. Just about lost it. About a week later, I got an email from the Gospel Coalition, which is a great organization, and the title of the email said, uh, A Reading List in Theology for Women. And I was like, oh my gosh, here, here it goes again, right? And unfortunately, I opened up the email when it said, A Reading List for, for Women in Theology. Item number one, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Item number two, John Calvin's uh, uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Item number three, and I was like, yes, thank the Lord. What did they say is the theology that women should read? It's the theology that everybody should read. Essential theology, why? Because women should learn. And women should know the word of God, and they should study the word of God, and they should remove any hindrance to learning the word of God. Remove hindrances to prayer, remove hindrances to learning. Third item, which is going to be the bulk of our time, and and I will admit this gets a little bit tedious, is remove hindrances to instruction. So stay with me. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. And Paul says this when he says, I do not permit. Paul is speaking with the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is not sharing his personal opinion or his personal practice. You cannot read this verse and say, well, Paul doesn't permit a woman to do that, but I do, and Paul's opinion is just as good as my opinion. No, Paul is speaking with apostolic authority here in what he says. Now, what is clear in this verse is that Paul says that he does not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over men. What is not clear is that almost everything in this verse is challenged and has challenges in the Bible as well couple of things to understand as we dive into this. First off, as Paul is giving this instruction, he is specifically addressing roles within the church. We know that because Paul says this in the beginning of the next chapter. I give you these instructions so that you know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith. Paul, in the Bible, is not addressing here the role of women in leadership in business or in government, of which the Bible has many examples of women serving in those roles. And for biblically faithful Christians, the challenge of this verse 
is because it appears to be in tension with things that Paul and the Bible says in other places. Those, and I'm saying this for people who want to say, I want to follow Scripture. This verse is in tension with other verses in the Bible. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians instructs women how they are to pray in the worship service, how they are to prophesy in the worship service. Paul commends Priscilla, um, Priscilla and Aquila for, the, for Priscilla and Aquila, the, Priscilla the woman who's always named first, which is an indication of the prominence. Um, Paul commends her for her instruction and reproval, rebuttal of Apollos who is teaching, who is publicly teaching. And that's just the Apostle Paul. And then there's other verses in Scripture that teach this. So there is a tension here because how on the one hand can Paul commend people for their teaching and for their publicly speaking in worship service and at the same time say he doesn't permit women to teach and that they need to remain quiet? What is going on here? That's the challenge of this passage. Well, how do people seek to reconcile this? There's two main approaches. The first approach is to say Paul's instruction here is temporary. What Paul is saying is temporary. He was specifically addressing an issue in the church in Ephesus, and so the prohibition is temporary, speaking to the issues in that church. And people who argue for this position say so because they say things like this. What Paul was prohibiting was he was prohibiting women teaching false doctrine in Ephesus. And so he says he doesn't permit the women to teach because the women were teaching false doctrine. Doesn't really hold up because... The false teachers named in Ephesus were all men, and there is no evidence of women being false teachers. So it's just an assertion. Another way that people attempt to deal with it from a temporary basis is to say women in that culture were not educated enough to teach, because a lot of times women weren't educated, as I just mentioned. However, ancient literature commends multiple very well-educated women in the region and advocates for their and, and commends their instruction. So that doesn't work. The third way people attempt to deal with it as a, being a temporary command is to assert that this was just a command for that culture only. It's a cultural issue in that time. However, subsequent verse, I believe, disproves that, which we'll see in a minute. But those who advocate that it is a cultural command for an issue in that culture... The proponents of that view give no guidance to discern what is cultural and what is an enduring biblical instruction. And the only standard there is what is cultural is the things they disagree with. And so that's not a coherent basis for understanding it as well. So that's the arguments for why it's temporary, which I think falls short. The other option is to understand it for biblically faithful people is that Paul's prohibition is not temporary, but it's permanent and partial. Permanent and partial. Why partial? Because Paul indicates women women speaking, women prophesying in the worship service, other examples of women teaching men. But what you do not see in Scripture anywhere is you do not see um, women giving Christian teaching as the authoritative teaching of the church in the assembly of the saints, in the assembly of the church, and in worship. Why? Because that task of Christian teaching and Christian preaching and communicating the the foundations of the Christian faith, that task is not given to women. And it is not given to men. 
it is given to qualified men who are called to be the elders of the church. And so Paul's emphasis here and point when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, um, he is saying, he's not describing, I'm sorry, when when he's saying, I don't permit a woman to teach, he's not saying, I don't permit a woman to teach because I permit to teach. No, he's saying, I don't permit a woman to teach because those who are supposed to be doing the teaching of the church are the elders of the church. Is who is supposed to be doing this. Paul, I'm sorry, let's, as Paul dives into this, let's look at two different phrases to help us understand this. Stay with me. He says, the two things he commands is that I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. When Paul uses the word to teach, as Paul uses that throughout his writings, when he says to teach, he uses that to mean not any sort of communication from one individual to another individual that imparts knowledge. Not that. When Paul uses the word to teach, he's referring to and uses it as regarding the doctrines of the faith and the foundational teachings, the Christian teachings of what does the church believe. You see an example of this in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, the qualification for an elder is that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. It's the same word, different, different grammatical forms for taught doctrine and teach that Paul is using here. So when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach, He's referring to you, I don't permit a woman to teach the doctrines of the faith, to teach the, the, te- the position of the church. And his point is not, in the chapter, his point is not that, women, that men must do all the teaching and women must never teach. Rather, his point is that the teaching and preaching of the church is the primary task, not of men, not of women, but of qualified, tested, and approved men who are elders of the church. That's their job, to do it. Well, who's qualified to be an elder? Well, that's what he goes into next week in the, in the, in the verse right after this, in which we'll dive into next week. So Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. What does that mean? It means it's simply to rule or govern the church. The elders, as Paul will subsequently lay out, bear the responsibility for, teaching, for the teaching of the church and for the doctrine of the church. The elders also bear the responsibility for the direction and the well-being of the church. And Paul, giving this instruction, saying, don't hinder... Instruction. And you need good elders. The church needs godly elders in the, in the congregation. And a church should be praying that God would raise up godly elders charged with this task to do it. That is why this command should be understood as being partial. A partial prohibition. But why here is why it should be understood as a permanent prohibition, not just a cultural issue that the church in Ephesus was dealing with at that time. He goes on to what he says next. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's instruction here, being that he is concerned with the structure and the ordering of the church, He says, Adam was formed first, that the roles within the church are rooted in creation. 
They're not the result of sinfulness. They're not the result of the fall. They are based in creation before sin entered into the world. And because they're based in creation, they apply to all people in all cultures for all time. By Paul saying this, he is not indicating in any way whatsoever that women are subservient to men or lower in status, value, or capability. In fact, the Bible would teach the opposite. The Bible would teach that men and women are both equally created in the image of God. That in Christ Jesus, we are both one. That we are equal in value and purpose. Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that if you are in Christ Jesus, then we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, men and women. That women become adopted as sons, as firstborn sons. An incredibly subversive statement Paul was making in ancient culture. Because women would never receive an inheritance. And Paul says that not only do women receive an inheritance, but they receive an inheritance of the firstborn son at the same level as the, the prime male. Women are, receive the same level of inheritance as men in the household of God, adopted, not as daughters of God, adopted as sons of God, bestowed with inherent value and dignity. So then, what is Paul emphasizing here? Well, yes... Men and women have equal value and equal status before God. And as they have equal status, we should also celebrate the differences that God gives. Just as Jews and Greeks are one in Christ, that doesn't mean that when you become in Christ, you lose your ethnic identity. It doesn't mean that when white people become Christians, that they're all of a sudden no longer white, and it doesn't mean that when black people become Christians, all of a sudden that they're no longer black. It means that what happens is that when they become Christians, they have equal value and equal standing, and there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And when Paul, but it doesn't eliminate the differences and doesn't eliminate the, 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 the diversity that God brings to the body of Christ, joined together in Christ. Similarly, when he says there is no male nor female, he's not saying when you become a Christian, everyone becomes eunuchs. He's saying, no, there is equal status, equal value, but there are God-given differences that should be celebrated as they join together in the body of Christ. Therefore, honor God's design. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul then continues, and and he gives this uh, basis about the created order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Not surprisingly, this is a notoriously difficult passage. But what this is not saying, which domineering men sometimes interpret it to say, it is not saying that women are inherently more likely to be deceived than men. If it were... The same line of argument that if, if, Eve's sin, if Eve's first sin was that she was deceived by the serpent, and if you take the line of thought that women are more likely to deception than men, then you also have to take the same argument that men are far more likely to rebellion than women. Because Adam was the one who rebelled against the direct command of God, Eve did not. But I don't think the passage is saying that in either regard. Believe what he is saying, and what scripture is teaching here, is that when you hinder God's design, when you subvert the created order, it always ends up bad. Just look what happened in the Garden of Eden. Here's what happened with Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve were charged to have dominion over all of creation. And this animal, this serpent, comes along and he upends the created order. The people, Eve, was, Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over the creation, dominion over the animal. But this serpent comes along, questions God, asks Eve to question God, and she listens to that which she was supposed to have dominion over. And then Adam, who was supposed to, being that the command was given to Adam and not to Eve, and Adam, who at the time was supposed to say to Eve, Eve, if the serpent said that, that's not what God said. Instead, what Adam does is Adam listens to his wife who listened to the serpent. It's completely upside down from the way that God designed it to be. And I believe what Paul's point here is teaching, he says when mankind subverts God's roles and God's design, the entire world and all of creation ended up in sin and misery. And that abandonment of God's design results in disorder and error. But embracing God's design results in blessings. He then goes on to state this. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If the last verse wasn't difficult, this one more so. At the least, what is being said here is that God preserves and blesses women in the roles of being a wife and a mother. That women, and God also blesses singleness, as Paul celebrates that earlier in Corinthians, and celebrates celibacy. And so Paul is saying that women should be valued and highly regarded. Women should be valued and highly regarded in their roles as a wife and as, in their roles of a mother, as a mother. That idea is in sharp contrast to the cultures of our world. That idea is in sharp contrast to American culture, even in its adv- adv- advocacy within American feminism. And the reason why I say that is because, as one example, a friend of mine received an alumni, sur- alumni survey from Harvard University. And Harvard was following up with his alumni to say, what are, what are you doing with your life after you graduated? What did you do? Did you go to grad school? Did you get a PhD? Did you go into business? Did you go join the Peace Corps? Did you do these variety of different things, which, all of which would be valid things for men and women to do and to be educated at the highest levels. But in this list of what are you doing, one of the options was, did you get a PhD? You own your own business? Or you work in the workforce? Are you on a child-rearing hiatus, was the term. Child-rearing hiatus. Not because the assumption there is that being a mother was not something that was worthwhile in itself that, that a woman could choose to do, and that there's value in that, which if a woman chooses to do, so Scripture affirms. But rather, that if a woman is choosing to do that, she is doing that as a hiatus to what really gives her value and what really makes her significant is her accomplishments in the world and her achievements in society. And so what Scripture says 
is that women and wives, contrary to the cultures of this world that say that women are property or women are slaves, contrary to the cultures of the world that say women are only worthwhile to produce children for domineering men, contrary to the American culture that says women only have value dependent upon their career achievements and their career advancements, what the Bible says is that God-fearing women have value because they are made in the image of God, and because they are bestowed with inherent dignity, value, purpose as a woman. And that is to be honored and that is to be celebrated. And so I believe what Paul is saying specifically in this verse is he, Paul is clearly not saying that women can be saved in the relation, saved from the pits of hell through childbearing. He's clearly not saying that. Why? Because Paul makes that expressly clear so many other places, that the only way that you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing that you yourself are a sinner and that you trust what Christ did on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, and thereby your sins are forgiven, you're made a, ch- a son of God, and you have an eternal life and eternal inheritance. Paul is clearly not saying that, all that there is a special thing that if women have babies, all of a sudden they get a fast pass into heaven. Clearly not saying that. Okay, And what Paul is doing here, I believe, is that he's just, the, the word saved can mean more things than just simply, I'm going to heaven. We use it to mean a variety of things. Hey, that person, uh, you know, got saved from drowning. That person got saved from a difficult conversation with that person. That person got saved the last piece of cake. Like, it means a variety of different usages in the context in our own usage, similarly what Paul is doing here. So what is Paul saying? I believe what he is saying is this, is that women don't try to usurp God's design. Don't try to usurp God's design, but learn the word of God and celebrate your womanhood and celebrate who God has made you. And if God has made you and you become educated and successful in the business world or in the education world, praise God. If God has made you and he's made you to be a wife and a mother, praise the Lord. Celebrate who God has made you to be. For the witness of the gospel, Paul's overarching concern is best maintained as men and women live and worship together as God intends them to do. And role reversals do not come from godliness. Role reversals do not come from godliness, but they stem from a rejection of God and a rejection of God's design and God's disorder and our hindrances to the gospel. So remove your hindrances from prayer. Don't fight. Don't be concerned about fashion. Remove your hindrances to learning, yes, at that time, women, yes, you should learn too. Remove the hindrances to instruction, people upending God's design for the order within the church and the role of elders in giving teaching and instruction. And above all, stay focused on Jesus and pray, and pray for the advancement of the gospel. Now, that's a whole lot of stuff that we just went through. Let me boil it down to a couple things very succinctly. What do you walk away with? Number one, keep your prayers focused on Christ and free from any sort of distraction. Stay focused on Jesus and pray earnestly to him. Number two, learn the word of God fervently and earnestly. Learn it, live it, and share it. Number three, thrive and flourish, and the church will thrive and flourish as you honor God's design for the church and live as the people of God. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we thank you that you have a purpose for each and every one of us, and we thank you, Lord, that you challenge the norms and the assumptions of traditional cultures and progressive cultures. You challenge the norms and assumptions and values and desires of every one of us, stemming with our own human hearts because we are sinful and we are distorted and we want to put ourselves at the center of the universe and not you. So Lord, may we live our lives in submission to your word and submission to your truth. May we live honoring you. May we live fervently praying that your will would be accomplished through our prayers. And may we live as you designed your people to live. And may the church be glorious and radiant as we fulfill your purpose in proclaiming the gospel here in this community and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.